Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. If you're a fan of this podcast and have an interest in conductors and conducting, may I suggest subscribing to our supporters club over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. With six different levels of subscription, starting from just £5 a month, you can join many other subscribers in enjoying exclusive extra bonus mini-episodes, interviews with prominent figures in the world of classical music, group and personal Zoom meetings, and even the chance to have conducting lessons from myself. The details are in the show notes below, it's quick and easy to join, and I'd love to see you come and join the conversation all about conducting with the other subscribers and myself very soon. Today, I conduct a conversation with a young English conductor who, after studying in Dublin and Vienna, went on to win the 2015 Aspen Conducting Prize. Since then, he's conducted in both the Opera House and on the concert stage all across Europe. It's a pleasure to welcome George Jackson. George, lovely to meet you, see you, speak to you today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Mike. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah, we're... We're just one day before another set of lockdown rules get lifted um, and, you know, we can maybe go to a pub garden and have a haircut again. It's not long, is it? With The light is at the end of the tunnel. I think so. I'm also definitely not maybe. I think we're definitely going to a pub garden tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I've, in fact, I've already booked and I'm, I'm taking my dad for a pint tomorrow afternoon, which oh, I'm very looking good. forward to. Absolutely. Very good. Well, you've just mentioned your dad. Let's find out whether he had any influence at all in your earliest musical experiences. Musical family or not? Not musical family. I mean, they love music and they certainly exposed me to music from an early age. But actually, it's a, it's a family of, of actors. It's more oh. of a theatrical family. So both of my parents are actors, although my mum retrained and works for the NHS now. Uh, and my sister is a casting director for film and TV. So there's a huge feeling of theatre and kind of drama, I suppose you could say, around the house. Um, but actually the the musical side was something that really happened sort of on my own, mm. um, with, of course, with their encouragement, but it was, it's always been completely outside. Yeah. But I mean, you know, if you grow up in a, in a, a family that is surrounded by the arts, you know, music's going to come into your life quite quickly, even though, you know, they may well be on the stage, whatever else, but you're going to encounter music, aren't you? You are. And I think just even the simple idea that you're going to pursue a, a career in something that's pretty unusual, um, very, very difficult, very competitive, different from the kind of everyday mould. Um, I think even having that kind of understanding and support is a huge advantage because of course it's quite an unusual thing to be you know certainly as a conductor you you're going for something which happens later anyway mm. um, you certainly spend your 20s in a sort of holding pattern um, potentially even your 30s in a holding pattern <laughs> so yeah. it's a long one and so having that understanding and that sort of you know um, I suppose uh, unconditional support for pursuing something different so really definitely something that's very privileged I can I can say. Well, I went to your website and discovered that you played the violin. Uh, was that your first instrument? Did you start on the violin? That's right. I, I didn't. I started as, as a piano player, um, very young, five or six. And I remember after about six or seven months, I just didn't practice. I refused to practice. And it got to a point where the teacher, Mrs. Hunt, who I still remember, Hmm. Um, who was just down the road from us, used to walk around there. Uh, she just said to my parents, listen, he's not practicing. 
Um, and there's no point in him coming to these lessons because he's not practicing. So my parents just said very honestly, you know, they didn't have a culture of kind of pushing me to do something I didn't want to do. Yeah. So they just they just said, well, we're not going to pay for the lessons anymore. So we'll, you know, we'll leave you to it. So I, I continued playing and, you know, improvising and doing different things. But I stopped having lessons, which, of course, I continued to regret <laughs> being being something that would be very useful to have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but a, a few years later, so I was around seven or eight. And the, the school I was at had, I think it must have been a quarter size violin or maybe a, a tiny, absolutely one of those very tiny violins. Um, and it was sort of going around and I expressed an interest in it. Yeah. Um, and that's really how I started violin lessons. And mm. so from that point of view, I started lessons and I wouldn't say I practiced a huge amount. Um, I was always the, the kid that got a phone call the night before the ABRSM exam saying, he's really not going to get through this exam, you know, and I'd sort of <laughs> just about pull it out of the bag, maybe at the last minute, um, yeah. you know, mildly passing through. But it was always, it was always a bit of a, I wouldn't say a struggle, but I just didn't have that culture of practicing. And of course, my parents, they didn't really understand that it's probably a good thing to say, right, why don't you do your half an hour or hour of violin practice this evening? They sort of just let me get on with it, uh, which I think was good because it just meant that I, I found my way to it slowly rather than having any pressure. Well, the other way is to do what my parents used to do. You know, if I said anything was too difficult or I didn't want to practice, you know, I distinctly remember them saying, well, give up then. Just give up. Mm. And the minute yeah. they did that to me, I was like, no, sod you. I'm not giving up. I'm right. I'm mm. going to get to it. You know, revert the old reverse psychology trick. It worked mm. well into my late teens. I mean, it worked every single time. Um, yeah. But I mean, that was their way of doing it. But I'm glad, much like your parents were, there wasn't a pressure to, right, get in the room, do your two hours, because that to me would have then felt like a punishment. Um, or a, Exactly. Yeah, which, uh, that's not what music should be like. You know, you want to do it because you want to do it. Um, whether, well, whether you have to. Yeah, whether you're let alone or whether you're the reverse psychology game. Play. You have to want to do it, ultimately. Mm. And of course, you know, it's not always that you... You know, you don't want to eat vegetables as a kid. You don't want to, you know, do your homework. Um, but, of course, there comes a point where you should see the value in it eventually and realise it's a good thing. Um, I think for me, with what was interesting is that I'd, I'd always played the violin kind of through my teenage years, but I then started playing the guitar. Mm. I got a, uh, a work experience job, um, which actually turned into my sort of Saturday job. I was about 15 uh, in the local guitar shop. It was a really quite a famous guitar shop in West London where I grew up, which um, which used to be the place that all the kind of tour managers would come in and say, right, you know, the Rolling Stones need some new strings this week or whatever it might have been. So I used to work in there and uh, it's probably illegal, but they used to pay me in in strings and plectrums and things <laughs> like that every Saturday. So, you know, it wasn't what well, certainly wasn't the minimum wage, no. uh, but I, I basically just spent spent the, the days playing the guitar and sort of jamming with the other guys that worked in there and and eventually started a band. And so most of my kind of communal music experiences as a teenager were all in a band playing guitar. I was also played the drums as well. Uh, there's plenty of, of um, videos and photos of me as a kid arranging all the kind of saucepans and things around the kitchen and um, just trying to play the drums, which, of course, my parents were not interested in having a drum kit at home, which I can understand. <laughs> so it, it was all that. I mean, the idea of an orchestra came a lot later and it was always through the guitar or through kind of songwriting and that element of being sociable that, mm. that brought me to music. So where did the... the the interest in orchestras come well I mean did you play in youth orchestras uh, at all or did it come later when you went to university 
I did play in orchestras at school. There were string orchestras and chamber orchestras, and, and it was always sort of easy arrangements of, of things. And it, it always felt like, you know, horrible to say, but not proper music. And then I remember I went to a, I must have been 16, and a friend of mine from school who was a violinist, who still is a violinist, uh, brought me to a, a party which started about 10.30 at night, which I thought that's kind of late for a party, but okay, let's go. And uh, and I remember, re- I, I discovered that the reason was because it was the, the Saturday night post-concert party of the Ealing Youth Orchestra, which, ah. is, which is my local youth orchestra, of which I wasn't a member. And it was the best party I think I'd been to as a 16-year-old. Um, I met all these people, of course, that you don't get to meet through school. It was that sort of extra social aspect. Got into all sorts of fantastic discussions with people that I never met. Um, it was a pretty late party, I think, if I remember correctly, or if I don't remember correctly, let's say. <laughs> and I think for some reason, I just remember this feeling of, well, hang on, if all these guys that play in an orchestra can have a great social life, then there must be something in this orchestral yeah. thing. And so I joined, you know, almost immediately and uh, joined as a, as a second violinist somewhere down the back and mm. worked my way up over the next few years. And we had these amazing tours to, I think we went to Austria one year and we went to the Czech Republic and we had these kind of play-a-thon days where we'd go through all the Beethoven symphonies for charity and that kind of thing. And so suddenly this kind of social aspect, um, basically like being in a band except bigger and different repertoire. But I distinctly remember going to the first rehearsal and kind of seeing, I think we did Sibelius' first symphony was the, was the first kind of piece that we played or that I remember playing. And just seeing these parts that had come from presumably Victoria Music Library or one of the music libraries and just thinking, well, this is kind of the real thing. These are the mm. real parts and the real music. Um, no more Boozy and Hawks arrangements of easy violin music and things. And so it was just this kind of big step up, but it did, you know, it's shameless to say, but it really did come from that social aspect. University, off to Ireland. Um, That's right. Not met anybody who studied in Ireland, studying music. Was this where you first encountered conducting? I'd conducted, actually as a sort of a joke, um, (laughs) when I was at school, (laughs) which sounds sounds like the worst way to start, but I remember at school there was a a chamber orchestra and there was was an afternoon where the the teacher, who was actually a physics teacher uh, who conducted, uh, just didn't show up for whatever reason. And, and as a joke, I conducted for about 20 minutes and quite enjoyed it. And we sort of rehearsed for a bit and then we went off and had lunch and that was the end of it. And I sort of never really thought about it twice. So I, I suppose that that was sort of the first time I stood in front of a group of people. But, yeah. but with, with Dublin, it was interesting because I, I knew that I didn't know much about music or repertoire or just general. All these concepts were new to me. Even I think even opera, I'd been to my first opera age about 17 or 18 at ENO, I think it was. And so I knew that I was not disciplined enough to perhaps go to music college and and properly study an instrument and do things practically. But I also knew that I had a lot of catching up to do. You know, I had to learn. I remember once when I was sort of thinking about going to university, just writing down all the composers that I knew kind of just from the top of my head and having no idea how they were related. You know, where, where was Mozart compared to to Schumann or it was just a whole blurb of different composers so I knew that I had to catch up and 
get a sense of who who was when. So I was looking around for university. I originally thought I might study something like English literature or something more, you know, still artsy, but not necessarily music. And then I found it difficult to find a kind of university music course that wasn't a watered down version of lots of different things. Yeah. yeah. Because I always felt there was no point in me going to a university and doing a bit of violin, perhaps, maybe having some lessons, doing a recital, which in, a, in essence is a watered down version of going to a music college. Yeah. So I remember going over to this, it was an open day at, at Trinity College Dublin. And it was interesting because it was one of the few courses, if not the only course I'd found that, that said very proudly, this is not the place to come if you're interested in performance. This is about studying music academically, historically, yeah. uh, looking at musicology, looking at sort of how music functions and how it works and all the all this sort of history behind it and so that suited me perfectly I just thought this is exactly what I need and also it was this famous library at Trinity College mm. and I mean I, rem I remember just being given sort of a, an essay in the, in the first week uh, and she, she just said this Baroque history lecture just go and write an essay and come back in three weeks and so <laughs> you, find, you find yourself in this library surrounded by books about things that you know nothing about and just exploring and and it was a real sort of intellectual type exploration which I think I think had I have had a, a mixed version of a music degree in in other situations it wouldn't have worked it was just a brilliant place to to try things out and to get a sense of what was there mm. and to get immersed in the history of it and you know I'm, I'm assuming not only was it the history of music, but you were doing harmony classes and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah. and as you say, so many university degrees, I taught students at the Birmingham University whilst I was teaching at the conservatoire. And it, yeah. watered down is exactly right. You know, they, they had half the amount of lessons that the conservatoire kids had with me, uh, or maybe even less, you know, and, and it was all working towards one recital at the end of the three years rather than a recital every year. Um, mm. And the watered down is exactly right. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, so therefore you basically told me you didn't really conduct very much at university either. Is that, would that be fair or, or were there opportunities to wave your arms around in front of people? The first few years I was more interested in kind of composition a little bit and yeah, sort yeah. of being involved in, in other activities. I, I remember actually joining the choir as a choral scholar at one point as well. Um, in, I think it was my second or my third year. Uh, but then as I sort of got more experience, I realized that, first of all, there weren't any conductors around. There was nobody around saying, I want to conduct. So I set up a contemporary music group with a friend of mine who's a, an Irish composer called David Coonan. And we set up this ensemble really with the idea of performing other students' works. Mm. Uh, this was the time at Trinity College where um, the Irish composer Donica Dennehy was running the department and running the composition aspect. So there was a huge kind of international profile of the composition side of things lots and lots of composers so we we got this kind of ensemble going and did a lot of performances of new works and workshop things and invited guests in and, and started things like that meanwhile I was able to have a bit of experience conducting the main symphony orchestra of the university so a kind of uh, you know extracurricular orchestra mm. uh, but one of the other things that was great about Dublin was that just behind Trinity College is the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Hmm. Um, and I was living actually on the same street, uh, Westland Row, just behind Trinity College Dublin, where I discovered a, they were uh, advertising it as a part-time 
advanced conducting course. And what it actually was, was um, it was a third or fourth year option for people who were at the music college. So mm. instrumentalists and singers. So I essentially joined that class for one of my years and sort of made up my own version of a kind of mixed course, getting a bit of, bit of the music college side, but a bit of um, the university and had some lessons there. Um, they were really generous, gave some experiences with the orchestra and uh, a couple of kind of Baroque concerts and things like that. And as I started to conduct more and more, I kind of realized how hard it is, as I'm sure is a <laughs> recurring theme uh, for everybody. You actually, the more you try and the more experiences you have, the more you realize how difficult it is and also how much you need to know and develop before even considering it in any professional capacity. Yeah. And so that, that led me basically to the point of saying, right, I've, I've finished university. Um, I'd like to go and study conducting and kind of do it properly um, rather than, I don't know, I, I, there are many courses around, I know, but actually I needed the sort of the, the from the ground up, everything mm. from the piano stuff to, to everything else that you need. And so that's when I started researching what my next step might have been from finishing in Dublin. Mm. Uh, and you went to Vienna. That's where you ended up. And so how long was that course? Who was it with? Who was teaching you? So I, I went on a sort of, you know, it's such a stab in the dark. You, you go yeah. on these sort yeah. of audition tours of, okay, so if I want to become a conductor, I have to study conducting. And generally speaking, in, in the German-speaking countries, if you want to study conducting, you have to be a very good pianist because, of course, they want you to join an opera house as a, as a repetiteur and then work your way through their system, which, which makes sense from an employability perspective yeah, it makes yeah. complete sense um, and of course i'm i'm turning up at uh, different music schools in sort of leipzig and berlin playing that that really easy late beethoven g major sonata which the leichter sonata the easy sonata you know they they know the panel know okay this guy's not a pianist there's no way um well you're, you're more of a pianist than me because i wouldn't even know what that was either I would... well I, it was it was just you know take the two volumes of beethoven sonatas and right. pick the easiest one and that was it yeah so yeah. so i was turning up at these auditions with these really serious like pianists from across the world who were really playing the most incredible, you know, Liszt and Rachmaninoff to get into these conducting courses. Huh. Uh, and so I had no chance when it came to that kind of audition process. I did a few of them in my last year in Dublin, kind of traveling around. And then the last kind of stop on the tour, which was right at the end of the, almost into the summer, at the end of the year, was Vienna, which was a very different approach. It was a kind of a three or four day long, almost like Simon Cowell knockout, type audition <laughs> uh, but what was great is that they they started with all the things that I'd been doing for the past few years so they started with harmony and counterpoint they yeah. started with the um the ear training skills and things like that uh, and then ev eventually the last day um when there weren't that many people left in the different rounds was the piano I could then show them that I wasn't really a piano player originally yeah. and then of course a bit of conducting and an interview um, and in that interview I met Mark Stringer, the American wow. conducting teacher. And it was almost one of those moments where, you know, in, in the space of a couple of minutes, your, your whole life changes because suddenly I was being invited to come and, and study for what, what then became a five-year master's in conducting uh, at the Vienna Music School. And so it sort of happened, I suppose, by accident, but actually the, the fact that they that they properly took time to analyse the people who were applying yeah. rather than 
conduct two pianos for, for five minutes and then see you later, yeah. meant that they were actually interested not just in the, the pure skills of being a, being a musician, but also everything else that came with it. And so they, they certainly had, a, had a, a really unique way of approaching it. And I think that, that continues, I think, to this day. I think that's a much better approach. I mean, I know, you know, I've talked about the Kapellmeister system in previous, at a long chat with Kevin John Edusay about the Kapellmeister system because he went through it and called it brutal. But, of, mm. you know, if, if, if the only way you're going to whittle people down is to find out if they're good pianists before they then get to learn to conduct, that knocks out the rest of the world who aren't good pianists, but there might be a, a gem of a conductor in there. You know, you don't mm. necessarily need piano skills to become a conductor. You know, I've done quite well and I can barely pick out a tune with one hand. Um, mm. You know, if I need a pianist, I'll, I'll get our secret to the book one. I, you know, that's it. You can do it. It's perfectly acceptable. Um, Mark Stringer, I know uh, I was conducted by him at the CBSO and he assisted Simon Rattle on a couple of the opera projects we did during my time at the CBSO. The last time would have been the Macropolis case at the ex Aix-en-Provence Festival in 2000. I remember Mark being there then. Um, what's his teaching style like? I, I know um, his name came up way back when, Daniel Harding's episodes, because Mark Stringer gave Daniel some lessons and some tips midway through an astonishingly successful career. But what's he like with somebody who starts from the ground up? What's his approach? Well, I think what's amazing about Mark Stringer is that he doesn't just come from a position of... of being a, a good conductor, he's mm. he's come through so many of the important training systems. He came through Tanglewood. He was actually closer to Leonard Bernstein, I think, rather than Simon Rattle earlier on in his yes. career. Mm. Um, but then did sort of. I think Simon Rattle, from what I understand, met him at Tanglewood and, and brought him uh, to Europe. And he he did actually take on a position at, at Bern as a Kapellmeister, so in Switzerland, mm. um, where he continues to to live and be based, despite teaching in in Vienna. But Mark Stringer's approach is very he, he does the sort of the fundamentals really, really well. You know, he, he focuses on how to just the general technical aspects and, and all that stuff. But actually, um, at the end of the day, he's a, he's a musician and he mm. teaches things from a musical perspective. But actually, as I'm now learning, almost all the things that he says are always said in the context of what hopefully will become a professional career. Yeah. So it's not ideal for, for people who aren't, necessarily going to go on and learn the lessons that he's taught professionally later on mm. because some some of the things you know when you start out you've no idea where you're heading as a conductor whether you're going to conduct the great orchestras of the world or whether you're going to focus on other things or whether you're going to get your way through a magic flute on no rehearsal in uh, you know just somewhere outside Berlin or you know whatever yeah. it might be yeah. and actually I, I realize now that there's, there's the psychology the rehearsal psychology the interest in historical performances and also old recordings, um, and also being a real, having a real interest in the opera world as well. Um, he sort of just brought everything together and um, we had a, a really fantastic environment with the class. Um, the other thing with Vienna that's great is that you have a, an orchestra there called the Pro Arte Orchestra, Pro Arte Orchestra. Yeah. And that was basically, I think four nights a week, um, very, very humbly paid students joining and to create an orchestra, which then became the class for there were two class, two different conducting classes. So one was Mark Stringer, the other one back then was Rodos Lajovic, mm. the Slovenian conducting teacher. So you'd have two sessions with an orchestra every week. Um, but but more interestingly, I suppose, um, as a 
as a third rate violinist, I was able to join the second violins mm. and actually be in all of these conducting classes. Uh, so in a way, it was almost a double lesson because on the one hand, I'd be in my conducting lesson and then I'd sit down and join the orchestra and continue to learn from everything else. And of course, yeah. you know, you can't underestimate, you know, to talk about people who play the piano very well, who go into conducting, those people probably have never been conducted. Yes, and that's exactly. A, that's yeah, a, yeah, that's yeah. a problem. You know, that, that's a big problem. And of course, I, you know, I don't need to tell you about the, <laughs> the joy of playing the violin under lots of conductors to, to learn the craft. But actually, there's, you can't replace how it feels to be conducted as a way of learning conducting. So I think Mark Stringer tried to cultivate students who were always going to play in the orchestra so that it was just this sort of very nice group of, of musicians who were able to do a bit of everything. He used to say, uh, Stringer Studenten können alles machen. Stringer students can do everything because he had this incredible philosophy that actually, if you're a conductor going into the business, there's no way you can really say no to very much. You have to be able to say, oh, yes, I can do the Russian opera. Yes, I can play the piano and accompany and prepare for singers for something. Yes, I can. I mean, I remember once he made me play the viola, um, which I'd never played uh, in the Elgar String Serenade uh, because he just said, yeah, well, you should be able to do that. <laughs> and so it was this brilliant, <laughs> incredible approach, which I think I think works very well. It was a really positive way of studying. Well, you really can learn so much from watching other people be taught. Um, you know, because you're you're not one of the parties. You're not. You know, when you're being taught yourself, you're always. You know, you're always under a pressure situation. I always thought it. You know, whereas if you're sitting in a room watching somebody else be taught, your fr- your mind is free to sort of collate all of this stuff and think actually I can apply that to me in this way and I can apply that to me in that way or that simply doesn't apply to me because I'm that shape and this that person's that shape you know so being in that situation I think is would be really helpful for anybody whether you know they're going to get their personal time but then we're just watching other people being taught I mean when I studied with you on the panel for two weeks I learned more watching the others than probably from the stuff I did with Yorma, um, which you know wasn't very much and very long, but watching him pick apart the others was uh, honestly more fascinating in some regards. Um, it's terrible. It's terrible to say as well, but just just to butt in that I found as a as a violinist playing in in those lessons, actually, I was making mental notes of things not to do. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. which which is almost more valuable, you know, Far more, especially. So, yeah. as, and especially with with the language of rehearsal, you know, someone would rehearse and they'd say something and, and you could just go, you know, never, ever say that to an orchestra, <laughs> never, you know. And actually that, in a way, coming at it from the point of view of what not to do restricts things down to the point where actually it's quite easy to know what to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I used to have friends of mine, one in particular, bless him, Eugene, a Romanian viola player in the CBSO. And we'd go outside for a cigarette in the break and he'd say to me, Oh, this guy—he's ter- terrible. You're talking about the conductor that week. He said, "You, you, you know now when you go and be a conductor." He said, "You, you know all of the things not to do." He said, "You cannot fail." And every yeah. time I'd smile at him and go, "Yes, Eugene, yes." Um, but he was right. You know, you, you you just file it under the comments you can't say, things you can't do. You know, ways of rehearsing just don't do that. Um, yeah. And it, so again, I think I probably learned more from the bad ones than I did for playing for three of the greatest music directors have been, really, you know. Um. I was going to go on and 
and so you, you're talking about the fact that you played in this orchestra with two two teachers, Mark and uh, the other guy whose name I've already forgotten. Um, but then, you know, there's a list of people you have masterclasses with. Bernard Heitink, uh, Michael Tilson-Thomas, Kurt Mazur, David Robertson. Um, and that's before we talk about the two people you, you assisted for some time. Was Were you doing sort of what we've just been talking about, which is when you stood in, up and did masterclasses with these people, were you taking the already working out what the gems were uh, and were there things that you thought actually that I'm not sure that really works for me um, especially if you've studied for five years with one teacher such as Mark, Spring, uh, Mark Stringer you know that it must be difficult sometimes when somebody tells you something which is the polar opposite of what you've been taught for five years how did you cope with those big names in masterclasses and were they all joyful successes I think the most important thing about those those masterclass situations is it's always just you know, trying a little bit of, of something and seeing what they might say to you. And, and I think yeah. I think all of those situations, they were all part of a sort of quite a big tradition, which which obviously continues of very, very big name conductors, you know, generously choosing to, to give a little bit of their time back to, to the younger generation, which I mm. think I imagine they had all experienced themselves. Um, and certainly... Yeah. The, the famous Heitink masterclasses in Lucerne. Um, of course, Pierre Boulez's masterclasses also in Lucerne were important. This was also the time when the LSO used to run a masterclass every year. Mm. Um, in this case, it was Michael Tilson Thomas. But sometimes these masterclasses were sort of a double function because on the one hand, you got to conduct a little bit in front of someone like Michael Tilson Thomas, but you also got to conduct the LSO. Of so course. it yeah, was yeah. A, yeah. a sort of a... But I think as at that point, I mean, I was early 20s mid or mid-ish 20s at that point I mean it's such a huge heightened experience that you probably learn from it in a very small way over the next few years as you have it as an experience Mm. you know there's no way you can just you know from nothing stand in front of an orchestra like the LSO for 25 minutes and then learn something you know Mm. it's just part of a kind of framework of experiences it all gets added into the another ingredient into the pie um yeah two more ingredients into the pie uh i read that you were mentor i assume assisted robert spano and eve abel um yes i'm assuming with robert spano that would have been at aspen for a, a couple of years um because that was at aspen yeah. that's right yeah and so i well my first you mentioned eve abel um who somebody who i got to know when i was a student at, in vienna but that was a really interesting one. Um, Mark Stringer's assistant, um, who's a Japanese teacher called Yuji Yuaza, hmm. um, who he used to run a kind of evening repertoire courses with, with two pianos oh. uh, every Tuesday. I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where you'd say, right, I'm preparing Egmont. He'd get some pianists together and you'd go in and you'd, you'd play it through and he'd, he'd give you some tips. And it was oh. a, a sort of a much quicker way of learning. You know, it was just a chance to have a go with, with real humans rather than just at home. And I remember he used to go on these long kind of rants about how difficult conducting is and how hard the industry is and how, 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 how tough it is um, yeah. in a very honest and very direct way. And it must have been probably our first lesson. You know, we'd all just arrived in Vienna and it was very early on in the process. And he just said, the only way that you're going to get anywhere in this is if you have a mentor from somebody within the industry or somebody who, who's already kind of able to share their experience with yeah. you. And so he encouraged us. He just said, you need to go and write either letters or emails or go and hang around at the Musikverein stage door. Just talk to conductors and, and be 
be kind of bold and ask them if you can assist them. Mm. So, which is, of course, it's great advice. And so I, I remember going home and, and writing letters. I think I wrote about 50 letters and I, I picked all the conductors who I knew were coming to Covent Garden in London mm. and who were coming to the Vienna State Opera. Mm. I was like, right, I'm going to write to them. I'm going to say, I'm a young conductor. I'd like to assist you. I'd like to shadow you. Can I come to your rehearsals? And uh, of course, you know, of the 50, I think, you know, most of them did get back to me, which is to be expected, but two of them did. Um, the first one was Semyon Bichkov, who mm. wrote me a, a really very nice email and said, please come. I'm doing a Wagner Tannhäuser at the Royal Opera House. Come and just watch rehearsals and chat, and which I did. And it was, it was incredibly generous and it was, mm. it was a really good experience. The other one um, was Eve Abel, who is a Franco-Canadian conductor, primarily in opera, Mm. Um, works a lot at the Deutsche Oper in Berlin. I think he was principal conductor there for, or principal guest conductor there for a while, but travels around um, between the US and, and Europe. And he, I got this email one day saying, um, I'm doing my debut at, at Royal Opera House in London, Traviata. Um, will you come just as my assistant and just be, be there kind of on my side of the table? Because of course, as a guest conductor, it's, it's you and then it's the house and the team that they give you. So he was able to kind of bring me in as an external assistant to support him with that. And so uh, I remember very asking Mark Stringer for about two and a half months off <laughs> on my last, <laughs> my first year in Vienna. Please, can I go away for two and a half months? And of yeah. course, yes, go and do, yeah, yeah, yeah. do the assistant, get it. You know, that's important. So um, that basically began this fantastic, almost a side kind of hustle to my main studies of conducting where I was, I was Eve's assistant all over the world. So he, he took me to Metropolitan New York, to um, the Munich State Opera, back again to London, uh, also in Vienna. And it just sort of became this um, little extra aspect of my education, which was assisting on these huge, quite often with quite famous casts. Um, and, you know, I'd be left in the room with these really <laughs> scary, but, you know, fantastic singers. And it was, yeah. Just all from writing a letter and asking for help, which is an important thing. That's brilliant, isn't it? That's absolutely brilliant. And and also brilliant for, for him to do that for you as well. Um, yeah. You know, to have the, you know, to say, yeah, actually, yeah, I would like to use you. And then to form a relationship. And, and the only, the best way of learning all this stuff is from the inside. And what a what an incredibly, well, lucky, of course, but um, mm -hmm. but a, a brilliant thing to, to do. Um, mm -hmm. You... Were a prize winner in the Jeunesse Musicale competition in Bucharest and also won the conducting prize at Aspen in 2015. How did that impact on your career guesting wise? Did it did that really open some doors in being involved in two competitions like that? Um, I'm building up in particular, and for the first time in, in all of the podcast episodes, I'm going to talk about one particular concert in a minute, but um, in 2018, right? I really want to fill in the gaps between, you know, appearing at the Jeunesse Musicale in 2012 mm -hmm. and winning in Aspen in 2015. How did that sort of help the career? Well, Jeunesse Musicale was, it was a Bucharest competition with the UNESCO Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah. And it was 2012, and I was still a student, uh, in Vienna and I was starting to kind of look for experiences and, and situations outside the studies to kind of get some more experience. Um, one of the things that Mark Stringer kind of insisted upon us when we were students was actually to not take on 
sort of um, university orchestras or, or amateur orchestras alongside our studies, which is an interesting take on it, because, of course, that's a great way of getting experience. Yes. But he, he said the problem is you'll, you'll develop bad habits. You know, you'll, you'll realise that you've got a trumpet section that's always late. So you'll pick up a way of conducting that will stick and that, that won't help you when you're in this sort of formative growing years of learning. So he was always saying to us, actually, the most important thing to do is go out and do competitions that involve professional orchestras at the right time or go out to master classes. So I remember applying to the Bucharest competition, not really knowing much about it. Um, and then suddenly being invited. Um, of course, this is this is back in the days where actually it was a chicken or the egg situation because you needed a video to be able to get to a competition or a masterclass. And you needed to do those things to get the video to be able to go and do. Yeah, yeah. So it, yeah. it was a it was a vicious circle. So it sort of happened from nowhere. And I remember going to Bucharest again with no no idea that that it was gonna it was gonna happen or it was gonna you know I was gonna progress. I, I learned the repertoire and it was thankfully it was quite sort of standard repertoire. Um, you know we started with uh, Debussy Prelude de l'après-midi with pianos first of all, and then we moved into uh, I think it was the Eroica Symphony in the first round and Egmont, and then Raval, Sigan, and et cetera, et cetera, until there was a Brahms. Yeah, final. I mean, you say standard repertoire, but all of those pieces are bloody hard to conduct. I mean, they're, they're all sods. Um, yeah. <laughs> whilst yeah. they may well be pieces we encounter regularly, they're the sort of pieces that, you know, that you can quite easily come a very uh, come a cropper in that repertoire. Um, yeah. I did yeah, Sagan for the first time very, very recently. That's hard. Yeah. You know, that's really tricky. The hardest part is standing there for five minutes. That's, yeah, that's so true. Thought. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it was it was a weird situation. But but actually, it was the first time it was me on my... It was like taking the stabilizers off a, off a bike. It was me yeah. on my own with a, with a professional orchestra. Yes, there was a jury, but they didn't have any interaction necessarily. Mm. And so suddenly I remember thinking... You know, okay, now I have to work. Now I have to do this, and it it almost felt like I'd been, again, like stuck in a kind of holding pattern, learning and and doing all this kind of work, and then suddenly I was able to to experience the the real orchestras, and so yeah, it, it just every day was again, wow, they've put me through to the next round, and then the mm. next day the same. Um, almost you, I don't know if what the situation is like in other competitions, but it's almost like I didn't connect how the performance might have been in a round and getting through to the next round and being on that list. They just were almost two separate things. Yeah. Um, and it just, it almost felt like luck. Oh, okay. I'll continue on. And, uh, and so the best part of the competition was the fact that it was all videoed by, yeah. by the Athenaeum, the, the fantastic concert hall in Bucharest. So suddenly I was going into my, must have been my third or fourth year as a student with all these videos from the competition with a very, very good Dionescu Philharmonic with a good orchestra. So in a way, that's the thing that basically paved the way to then applying to bigger masterclasses um, mm. and then ultimately to, to the Aspen Music Festival, which is yeah. where I went and met Robert Spano and um, spent three years, three summers there. Yeah. So this concert, uh, I'm, I'm going to go straight there. Um I've done one of these, a big jump in at very, very late notice. This was in April 2018. Uh, I've even written in my little book of notes to my left, big jump in, exclamation mark, where you replaced Daniel Harding. Now, that's a big thing in itself. You know, I replaced Andres Nelsons. I also replaced Sinaiski and, Vol and Ilan Volkov at various stages. That's big enough in itself. But the piece was Ives 4 with mm -hmm. the Orchestra de Paris, and Ives 4 is particularly famous for being incredibly difficult. 
I'll come to whether you had a second conductor or not in a minute, because the, the end of one of the movements often is done with two conductors. But also I read in the same concert, you were also conducting Les Arts Florissant and Ensemble Intercontemporain, which I always stumble over when I try and try to pronounce it. How on earth did you? How on earth did you end up conducting three orchestras in the same concert? And and what was it like? Well, how much build up or time did you have to learn this stuff? Well, it, this all started. It was a kind of a whirlwind four months or so, five months. Right. It started. It all started in a pub in Holborn. Oh, in like all Feb of the best stories do. Like the best stories. <laughs> it, it was. It was February, um, and it was sort of freezing cold and it was I remember I got a phone call it was a Friday night and it was yeah. about nine o'clock um, so you can imagine the kind of state that we might have been in at that point yeah. uh, but we I got a call from from Daniel's agent mm. um, asking me if I was able to go to Paris on the Monday or, or on the Sunday for a Monday rehearsal to assist Daniel on Mahler the ninth symphony yeah. with Jörg Wiedmann's viola concerto which was a regular concert series in in Paris followed by a mini tour to Vienna and then a northern European tour to Cologne, Dortmund, Luxembourg. Mm. Uh, so, so I remember sort of, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I'd love to. I was free. This is the great thing about being a young conductor. You're mostly free. Yes. So, yes, great. Fantastic. So I, I remember driving. To, I think I didn't have a copy of Marlon. I remember driving to must have been Kensington Chimes about nine o'clock the Saturday morning and just buying the, the score and then studying for you know 48 yeah. hours or so uh getting ready and they were going to give me the Viedman once I arrived right um now it wasn't it wasn't uh it wasn't me it was Daniel it was it mm. was uh it was his his week and it was me being the assistant primarily because we were touring and you know we, we needed the balance checks mm. and all the types of things that go with being an assistant so okay. I suddenly sort of found myself being quite regularly working as as the assistant with that orchestra over the next few months and at one point, I was in the dressing room talking to Daniel and to the choir director of the Orchestre de Paris, and they were saying that they've got this Ives 4 coming up, mm. and they hadn't really thought about the logistics. And so I remember Daniel just said, right, George, you're going to be the second conductor. So, <laughs> okay, great, fantastic. And I think somebody else was going to be the other, because actually you need three conductors. Yes, you do, yeah. Because yeah. You, you need two on stage and one for the percussion off stage. So at that point... It, you know, we we put it in in the diary, and that was all agreed, and that was going to happen. I had no idea what else was on the program, but it was a big sort of Parisian collaboration between Ensemble Intercontemporain, Les Arts Florissants, and the Orchestre de Paris. And the idea was that they would do one concert, um, or sorry, one piece including Les Arts Florissants with the Orchestre de Paris, which was Jörg Wiedmann's Echo Fragments, hmm. which is a clarinet concerto for modern orchestra and period instrument orchestra oh, wow. with with Jörg playing a, a yeah. clarinet and then the other piece was Jonathan Harvey's um one of his uh, pieces called Wheels of Emptiness uh, which he wrote for the Ensemble Intercontemporain about I think maybe 10 15 years ago which they were they were then playing as part of the concert and then I think uh, Les Arts-Florissants were going to play uh, something else um, in that concert so I had no idea of any of that all I knew was that we were going to try and get our way through Ives 4 in a couple of weeks <laughs> time uh, so you know, a couple of months later, and it's it's actually April Fool's Day, and it's right. and it's Easter Sunday, so I get a call from from Daniel saying I'm stuck in I can't remember where he was stuck, but he had an ear infection and he couldn't fly. The doctor right. said you can't fly, 
And I was like, oh, yeah, very funny, April Fool's. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, He's one and, of the people I can imagine probably would do an April Fool, actually. There are yeah. a lot of conductors I've interviewed and know personally who think, actually, it, regardless of the date, that's a true phone call. But I, I can imagine Daniel doing that. There's a yeah, yeah there's a, a twinkle in his eye very often. Yeah. <laughs> so I, th- I thought, brilliant, hilarious. And then about five minutes later, the um, the general director of the Orchestre Paris is, is calling me, right. saying... Daniel's, and I thought this is an elaborate April Fool's. I, <laughs> you know, this is, they're including many people at the, as he said, Daniel said that you're willing to take over this week. This is Sunday yeah. for a Monday 10 a.m. rehearsal. Right. Um, I'm about, I'm about to fly anyway later on that day yeah. in what I thought was to, to assist. And he says, Daniel says you can take over. You know, do you, do you want to do it? We've, we've got a small list of people who've done Ives 4 that we're ready to ring. But Daniel says that you've studied it uh, and you're ready to go. Um, yeah. And will you also take on the other pieces in the program? Mm. And it was just one of those things where I just thought, well, yeah, this is this is what you're this is what's supposed to happen. This is what the great yeah. stories are, and and so and also at, at the same time, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, yeah, you're going to get through it. You're, you're going to find your way through it. Especially, you know, it almost this kind of repertoire is almost not to say it's easier, but it's it's simpler to do because you're not going in and doing a Brahms symphony with mm. the Berlin Philharmonic. You know, it's a very, very different setup. So I just thought, yeah, absolutely. And mm. so we, we, it happened. And I, I got sort of PDF copies in my email. So I spent this whole flight. I mean, they must have thought, whoever, whoever was sitting next to me on this flight must have thought I was crazy because I was just looking at these, these PDFs of, these, of the Jörg Widman piece and the Jonathan Harvey piece. Um, and then, of course, spent the whole night studying and was ready to go then at 10 o'clock and it's amazing how you sort of it's like fight or flight you just mm. the adrenaline goes and you just power through mm. and um yeah it was just it was a I can't I can't believe I still can't really process it and believe that it happened in that way because it's it's such a bizarre set of repertoire but um but you know I have I have Daniel to thank for trusting me with that because not yeah. a lot of people would no no I mean for the listener um, any piece by Jörg Widman, I've conducted one mm. and rehearsed another actually on about two hours notice, which was the hardest thing yeah. I've ever learned in two hours um, mm-hmm. for the CBSO, actually not so long ago. But I've conducted Combrio, which is oh. an incredible piece of music. And I've conducted it on two or three occasions, but there's a tempo change every bar and a half, um, let alone mm-hmm. beat patterns. And then we get to Ives 4, where, as George has just said, there are two conductors on stage for the end of one of the movements where the second conductor needs to beat at a different time or tempo, or definitely in a different time to the main conductor. Yet there's also offstage violins, because when I played it in the CBSO, I was one of the people who started off stage, came on stage for the second movement, didn't play in the third, and then had to go off stage to play in the fourth movement. You know, And so yeah. you need another conductor. It, I mean, it, it's... But as you've just said, you're with an orchestra, you've been sort of in and around for two or three months, so they know you. Mm. They're desperate for you to do well. They want the project to work, you know, so you can't fail in a certain, you know, you have, of course you can fail, but, you know, you've got so many people on your side who are there, who are rooting for you, they're pulling for you, Mm. Um, uh, you know, and with the rubber stamp of Daniel saying, yeah, I I trust him. Uh, Yeah, I mean, incredible to hear the build-up of that concert, but I, did, I wasn't aware there was a piece of Jörg Wiedemann in it, which makes it even harder than I, I, I'd read in the first place. You know, that that's a, a hats off in your general direction, George, for that. That's a, that's Thank a tough, you. That's a tough one. At this point, 
I asked George how he thought Covid had impacted his career path and how he envisaged getting back to where he was on his career path again in a post-Covid world. As you can imagine, his answer was imaginative, thought-provoking and very positive indeed. If you want to hear that five-minute discussion, I've turned it into a Patreon-exclusive bonus mini-episode. For as little as £5 a month, you can get access to this mini-episode as well as all of the previous mini-episodes. You will also get a monthly bulletin podcast about my career, as well as advanced news about this podcast. You also get an interview once a month with a prominent person from the classical music world who has dealings with conductors, as well as articles, essays and all sorts of other conducting-based content. The details of how to join are in the show notes below, and I'd love to see you subscribe to the Supporters Club of A Mic on the Podium very soon. Now, back to my chat with George Jackson. When you come to learn a new score, uh, we know that you don't sit at the piano. Um, so do you sit in your room, use your inner, inner ear, and how do you learn a score from big to small or, and then back out again? And are you a scribbler of things? Are you a red, blue, black pencil, highlighter, pens, felt tips, or are you a completely blank, virginally white score person? I mean, I do a lot of markings. Um, I, I did an experiment actually quite recently where I was conducting... It was conducting a symphony. It was the Tchaikovsky First Symphony. Mm. And um, I had kind of a, a nice edition of it, which was new, which, which matched the orchestral parts. And then I had that Dover, yes. kind of all the Tchaikovsky symphonies in one, yeah. um, the, you know, the, the, the compendium. So I, I, but what I did is I decided as an experiment, because I, I maintain that writing in scores is an, is an end in itself. The, the process of writing into, into a score helps you learn the score. Yeah. But I still don't know whether I actually genuinely look down at a score at the end of that process and see my markings. I, I don't think I don't think I do. And so I, I did this experiment where I studied and wrote things in all sorts of colors and just did my normal process of preparation. And then I did all the rehearsals with just the, the completely clean uh, bright cop score that matched the parts. And, and I realized that I'd learned the score from marking. Mm. And so that made me realize that I think marking is important, but. I love the ability to actually realize that it's it's part of the process and actually writing something down. I, I always feel like, you know, circling something or writing something is just another way of making a mental note, yeah. um, which helps you get the score into your head. And then eventually, you, you, of course, you don't need your markings. Um, I don't have any particular system uh, when it comes to red, red or blue. I mean, I just I try to kind of just alternate as much as I can. So it looks so there's a bit of variety uh, on the page. Um, I, I certainly um, put things in like, you know, I'll put an exclamation mark in, in a circle. For example, if you get to an act of an opera where the trombones hopefully have come back in from the cafe <laughs> or wherever they might have been. Uh, but, you know, it, a reminder, you know, wake up the harpist, a couple of bars here and just things like that to just to make sure that that I'm because also one of our primary jobs, of course, is is to help. Yes, <laughs> and, of and course. Those kinds of things, I think, you know, it's it's useful to to be able to to remember. Oh, actually, yeah, the, the double bassoon hasn't done anything for twenty five minutes. So mm. that those kinds of practical reminders. Um, I also sometimes put in, I do a, a kind of an asterisk with a circle around it, which just tells me that it's something which I'm going to have to rehearse or explain or at least focus on during a rehearsal process um, because those are the kind of organizational things that I think it's easy to forget you know when you're in the throes of a kind of first rehearsal or a, a rehearsal week but in terms of, of studying I think 
the thing that I find most important about our job is not just to know what's going on there in the score, but actually to to have an opinion on on how that should be played or what you think it should how it should go like. And so I try to approach all of that at the same time. So I'm not just going, okay, now the first violins play this and then this happens here, but actually, you know, what are they playing? Why are they playing it? What's that? How's that relevant to the rest of the orchestra? And in a way, it's um, it's one of those things where it's never finished. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know those pieces that, I mean, actually for me, funnily enough, it's the Debussy uh, Prelude de l'après-midi because it's a piece which is like a conductor's audition. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there was a there was a phase where it was on every audition, and it was I think it was also the the first piece that you conducted at Aspen. So it was always every summer. It was something I ended up doing. And so it was one of those pieces that felt more difficult the more I studied it. And I'm sure you you know exactly what I mean. And it, it felt a bit I like do, that. I actually do because I'm conducting it very soon and I got the score. There you there. go. I opened it up the other day and thought, oh my God, it's this. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. of course, you know, I know that wouldn't know the music backwards, but every time you open it, you think there's something else there that yeah. I, I'd forgotten or something else there that that's you know the the Lego brick has landed in the in the right place. You think, oh my god, that's how that works. Yeah. But but yeah. technically, yeah, I mean, oh, it's so tricky. And mm. I actually think it's one of those pieces I'm going to be conducting with an orchestra I've never conducted it with before. Mm-hmm. That's such, you know, you, you start conducting and and you think, right, I'm going to be really grown up and not conduct in small beats uh, mm. and, yeah. and, and do it in big beats. And then you suddenly find yourself in small beats. It's one of those, you're never happy. I don't think you're, you know, mm. I'm sure there's a, there's a perfect way of conducting it, but whether you ever manage to do that with an orchestra live in the mm-hmm. room is another thing. It's, oh, it's so tough. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But I just think generally that that idea, you know, the, I, me- I remember once um, getting an email from a from a uh, singer, ask, you know, sort of saying, oh, if, if you're auditioning or if there's if there's an opportunity, here's my CV. And it, it was just a list of, you know, I have done 50 opera roles and this sort of quantity approach to yes. to how. how and I, I remember just thinking, actually, the. The, the whole point of it is that it is the quality over the quantity. You know, I, I want to make sure that if I'm working on a score, it's not that I'm going to necessarily study all the time so that I'm, you know, 100% prepared, but I'm also conscious of the fact that, you know, if I do it 10 years later, it's it's going to be like learning it again, or it's going to be like adding more and more. Yeah. And I think that it's it's very easy to have this approach where you think, oh yeah, I've done that. That's fine. Right. And it's... Unhealthy. (laughs) Very unhealthy. George, it is the moment that every conductor possibly dreads or looks forward to. Um, I've had a couple of yays over the the episodes and a couple of groans, which I've edited out. It's the 10 questions. And you may well know that we start with... What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? The sound I love is the sound of a live audience laughing Mm. because it's not something which, you know, if you're conducting the Tchaikovsky Pathetique Symphony, you're probably not going to hear any laughter throughout that (laughs) evening. But I think what's fascinating, I did a, it was Cosi Fan Tutte a couple of years ago. And when you have, um, you know, a a comic opera with lots of seco dry restative, you're, you're just standing there, you know, while the action's going on, you're just keeping an eye and making sure no one skips any, any numbers. And then of course, getting ready to start. And so suddenly I remember being in this situation where I had, you know, 1500 or so audience just behind me, 
you know, hilariously falling out of their chairs laughing. And um, it's the most amazing sound. It's not a sound that you get to experience. And of course, I remember listening to some interviews with, um, with a lot of comedians and they talk about this, this addiction that they develop to the particular sound of, a, of an audience laughing or a certain venue might have a particular sound. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing sound. And I think if anybody has the chance to do a comic opera with lots of recit where they just stand there, they should definitely do it just for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> and the sound you hate or dislike intensely? Um, I've chosen for this, I've chosen my washing machine. Um, which is, it's, it's, the, it's one of these sounds, it's a sound that it just makes me really angry. It's, um, and I used to have a washing machine when I was a student and it played, it was very Viennese, it played the trout quintet when your washing had finished. And um, yeah, it was quite nice. But now I've got this, for some reason, and I'd love to have been in the meeting where they decided, they, it plays a minor ninth. So a really quite a dissonant interval, very shrill, and it doesn't stop. Yeah. And it, it just puts me in a bad mood. <laughs> the reason why I'm laughing is that the washing machine is a bone of contention in my house. Um, mm -hmm. And especially during lockdown when I've been doing interviews, normally at three o'clock like we are today. Mm. Uh, and I've banned my mother-in-law who's staying with us during lockdown from using the washing machine because the whole side of the house vibrates. And then when you mentioned the track <laughs> quintet, I started to laugh even more because we've got exactly the same washing machine. You have the same one. Yeah, yeah which finishes with the track quintet. So yeah, yeah, you made me laugh out loud because the amount of times <laughs> it, uh, my mother-in-law will check with me, are you got any interviews today so I can put the washing machine on? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> oh dear. I wouldn't, really? mind. I wouldn't mind the trout quintet. It's the one I have now, which is- Yeah, the minor ninth. Places. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Number three. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, I think, as you know, Mike, we, we spend so much time traveling and being in quite exciting places and, and of, often doing exciting things, you know, in, in the schedules that, that we get to follow. So I think I would choose quite a mundane, you know, like you might call boring 24 hours that, that would probably start with something like going to the post office or taking the bins out or something just really, really mundane. Yeah. And then I suppose it would just be a, a kind of almost like an ordinary, ordinary Sunday. I, I think I'd probably, I'd maybe go to the, the butchers and get some lamb maybe stop off at the cheese shop, maybe come home and I'd do a, maybe a slow roast, um, put the lamb in the, in the oven for six or seven hours maybe. And then I'd go for a really long walk while that was happening. So I live quite close to the Thames path. Mm. Um, and so one, one of the great things, I'm not a very disciplined walker. So I tend to, if I can, you know, do 15 minutes rather than two hours. But the thing about the Thames path that's fantastic is that you have to complete a kind of a big circuit in order to make it happen. So, you know, you get down to the next bridge, you cross the bridge, you come back the other side, then you cross the, the previous bridge. So you, you basically have to do a two or three hour walk. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think I'd, I'd do that, especially if it's a nice day. Um, and then I think I'd probably, I'd have, I'd have my lamb roast and watch a Richard Curtis film. <laughs> it sounds good. I mean, I agree with you. When I've had days off on, you know, when I've been away, for instance, in Argentina, I mean, Buenos Aires, I've got so many friends there, but actually some of the better days off are when, you know, I just go for a walk 
and, and, mm. and I get a lot of thinking done. Not necessarily yeah. always about the what you're the reason why you're in Buenos Aires in the first place, but mm. you know, but often, yeah, some of the musical things I've been thinking about, I get, I can have a good think and just meander around and and uh, you know, all right, there might be a health benefit, there might not, because I probably end up mm. going for a steak after the end of it anyway. But the point is, you know, it's that thinking time, alone time. I don't listen to, don't put you know headphones on and listen to music. I just wander and and get either let your head clear or let some of the things that you're thinking about really percolate inside and i think it's mm -hmm. it's important in your time off to not be sitting slaving over scores in a in your hotel room or you know whatever um mm. well i know a lot of people you know they think oh great you're in paris for a week and but the realistic thing is that you're not you're yeah. you're in a hotel room yeah, across from yeah. a concert hall and you know and, and i know that a lot of conductors they they're fantastically disciplined at you know the afternoon they go to the the louvre or they go to the museum and they and they do something really cultural i'm i'm i'll come home i want to watch family guy and you know maybe go out <laughs> for a drink or just something completely yeah. i i just find that the the sort of inter cultural interest stuff is is real holiday stuff perhaps or something mm. different whereas actually when it's when it's connected to working it's i find that the more the more intellectual or the more demanding the work is the more non-intellectual the kind of come down side should be let's yeah. say yeah who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear well i've chosen two brilliant because it's very very difficult to to whittle it down um one who i knew a little bit and knew knew their work and one who i didn't um the one who i didn't is sir charles mccarris mm. Um, I at one point I had a, a fellowship which was named after him um, just after I finished studying and and of course I never got to see him live mm. so I got to know his family and through that got to know lots of his recordings and uh, particularly the late the Scottish Chamber Orchestra Mozart operas and there's something about and I'm sure I'm sure you have a similar opinion about it that actually Mozart's so difficult because if you're a little bit too fast it's the most out of control, wild thing in the world. And mm. if it's a little bit too slow, a couple of clicks, then it's boring and draggy and it could be could go on forever. And, and we all know that you, if you listen to a Mozart opera, at least one of the numbers of the night or of the, of the recording is gonna be in one of those directions. Yeah. But something about those, the, particularly those recordings that Macaris did towards the end of his life, were they're just absolutely perfect. They're so convincing, they're so congruent. And actually they, they sort of make you think, well, if you've dedicated your life to a repertoire like that, yeah, you'll find it by the end of it. And, yes. and I really think that that's something which, which, is, which he really did. Mm. The, se the second um, is who we used to call Holy Saint Nick, which is, of course, Nicholas Arnoncourt. Yes. Um, he, was, he was a conductor that, funnily enough, still even now, you know, you go to America and, and people don't know him. He's still... I mean, they know his recordings, but yeah. he's not seen as the top level of, of conductors, even when he was alive. And luckily, my whole time as a student in Vienna was coincided perfectly with his really exciting kind of final years of, of collaboration. And um, there would always be a sort of a text message on a Tuesday night that would go around through all the conducting students saying, right, tomorrow, 12 o'clock, Musikverein, so-and-so is rehearsing with 
whatever orchestra and yeah. um the the most amazing rehearsals were always nicholas honical with the con consensus musicals with his yeah. ensemble because he rehearsed as if he was giving a lecture recital to the to the orchestra um and then of course the concerts were the same he mm. talked to the audience and he'd he'd engage you with his thoughts particularly on rhetoric and language and so i still realize actually it was almost like another subject of of university going to his rehearsals and i still read his books constantly and think they're just so perfect for preparing particularly 18th century music and that kind of repertoire well i think um he's clearly second in the popularity stakes of the, uh, for this question uh, now he's he's a he's a clear second, uh, and actually mm. probably catching up with Carlos Kleiber. I mean, most of the earliest uh, episodes Carlos Kleiber featured probably you know two out of every three episodes. But I think Harmon Core's really catching up, and rightly so. I think you know, uh, plenty of people have said you technically you might not want to follow him, um, but everything else, you know, the energy and the and actually talking of energy, I played for Charles McCarris a couple of times towards the end of his life. And yeah, he always seemed to find the right tempi for things. You know, I remember doing Beethoven 7, absolutely the right tempi. Uh, Symphony Fantastique, you know, just just seemed to nail the tempi that I liked or I thought were the right ones, you know. Um, mm. As you say, when you get to a venerable age, um, you know, hopefully by then you found them and, <laughs> and remembered them. Brilliant exactly. choices. Uh, brilliant choices. Now, Number five is, some people find this question very hard. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Who would be a favourite current conductor or conductors? Well, it's hard because it, you're implying that you're excluding people, which is, of course, impossible to, yes. to do. But um, for this answer, I've chosen Robert Spano, the American ah. conductor. Um, the reason being that, first of all, the generosity of, of, um, of committing to mentoring and teaching. Um, I mean, he runs an enormous orchestra in the United States and has a pretty busy guest conducting profile for probably nine or 10 months of the year. But then the two months of the summer, so July and August, he spends all of that time, and I've never seen him take a day off, uh, mentoring students at Aspen, um, going through the process of, of conducting all the orchestras that are resident at Aspen. Um, I remember watching him come off stage, I think it was Sariajo, uh, L'Amour de Loin, the opera, coming off stage and then getting in the car in all of his concert gear and just coming and teaching a three-hour class on Brahms 1 until about 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, when I hear about the commitment that someone like Leonard Bernstein, you know, he would do his very busy season and then he'd just be resident at Tanglewood committing to supporting this next generation. Right. And, I mean, I've, I've never seen someone so dedicated in that way. And, you know, I, again, I don't think I saw him take a day off in all of the time that I saw him at Aspen and something really to be admired. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I think, well, to, to answer, let's say generally, mm. uh, and it sort of relates to the Charles McCarris thing, I think it's fair to say that, that Mozart is the hardest thing, just because the ingredients are perfect. You know, it's like being given the most amazing, you know, dry-aged fillet steak, and, you, as you know, you know you're just going to ruin it. Um, <laughs> and so I think on, on a general thing, I think that, but actually specifically... Um, during the time I was assisting in Paris, there was a week where uh, Pablo Herdas Casado was coming to do the Berlioz Requiem. And he was, he was in Chicago for the first few days of rehearsals that we were starting in Paris. So I was in charge of, I don't know, two or three days preparing the Berlioz Requiem. And I remember we got to the movement where you have the four brass choirs, you know, north, south, east, west. Yeah, the DSE, right? 
Yeah. Exactly. And we're in the Philharmonie and we've, we've got, you know, this huge distance um, and the chorus and everything. And, and I just, it, it, from a purely kind of practical organizational point of view, not only trying to get these brass choirs together with everything going on and getting everything right in the distance, but then kind of yelling in French at the top of my voice to each of them to try and get them to start in the right place. I think it was it was fun, but it was really, really tough. <laughs> <laughs> well, it reminds me of the one time I played that piece, and it was to- towards the end of my career, and I always wanted to play in it before I retired. Unfortunately, it came up. And it, we were working the CBSO were working with the orchestra of the Mariinsky. And uh, I, I'm not going to mention the conductor's name, but put it this way. At that moment you were talking about in the DS area, where four brass bands positioned in Symphony Hall Birmingham in the grand tier. So that's at the very top level of Symphony Hall Birmingham. They're in the four corners of the room. This conductor was decided to con- conduct with a toothpick in his hand. Um, at one point, the principal trumpet of the CBSO shouted down and said, Maestro, is there any chance you can use a baton so we can at least see where the beat is? <laughs> of course, the rest of the orchestra and choir are sitting there. Nothing happens at this moment other than four brass bands playing and yeah, you know, in the yeah. four corners of the room. Uh, and, of course, there was a shuffle of feet from all of the Brits, uh, but none of the Russians shuffled their feet or maybe even didn't know what uh, shuffling their feet was all about. But, yeah, it, no. it, it did make me laugh to think that there were these people you know, tens of metres away and right up in the top of the building. And he was expecting them all to get where the beat was with a, with a toothpick. <laughs> not easy. No. <laughs> I might leave that in, but I might not. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> see Good story. I, see I, wonder, I, I wonder who it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, where are we? Number seven. Just to remind you, you're yeah. not allowed to say passport, baton, phone score or suitcase. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? For me, it's headphones. Mm. Always headphones. I've, I've the few times I've not left with headphones, it's it's almost like being naked because I just I love listening to podcasts or to talk radio or to mm. to music, um, and especially going for long walks and things after rehearsal days. Um, I just find myself. I mean, for me, traveling, it's like if I can get from entering the airport to leaving the airport the other end, having only taken the headphones off to go through security, then that's a perfect sort of mm. enclosed journey. Mm. I think it's quite a nice way of approaching airports and, and busy places, probably more so now in the in the post-corona times. Yeah, and expensive noise-cancelling ones, I'm assuming. Yeah, not necessarily expensive, but and I'm not too fussed about noise cancelling. It's just I, I like the Bluetooth ones that give yeah. you that kind of freedom. I have to remember to charge them, which is always a bit of a nightmare. But I just think that they're probably the, one of the things I use the most and mm. would definitely feel lost if I didn't have them with me. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, this, I don't know if this answer's allowed. Um, it's it's related to being a conductor, but it's it's taken for granted that we, as conductors, we go into different cultures, different countries, different continents, knowing the kind of rehearsal culture that we're gonna, gonna meet there, whether it's lots of rehearsals or whether it's no rehearsals or whether it's, you know, where does this type of orchestra peak in that process? Is it, is it gonna be a terrible dress rehearsal and a great show or, you know, how, however that works. Mm. Um, but what's interesting is that orchestras themselves never have to make those little changes. It's always, it's always conductors that adapt to what they're going to. 
Mm. And so my sort of totally out there fantasy idea is sort of like a, a reality TV show where um, two orchestras, maybe a London orchestra and a, and a German radio orchestra or another orchestra somewhere in Central Europe, basically change schedules for six months. Because mm. it would be so fascinating to see an orchestra that has a completely different culture try and relate to a different schedule. And actually, I think what it would do is it would it would sort of open the eyes a little bit to the different ways there are of working. Mm. And I think ultimately, you because what I tend to do, and I'm sure you're the same, you, you see the benefits of all the different systems. And actually, your job yeah. is to almost try and bring the benefit from the other system and kind of add all those things in together. And so I just love the idea that some, some orchestras, perhaps even repertoire and stagione opera houses also change places just to see how they would function and maybe they'd appreciate the way that they work even more so after that it's a perfectly good answer and of course i'm going to allow it i wish more people would bring it up um maybe maybe channel four will start a reality tv show where that happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well, yeah do orchestra swap yeah it's yeah a, it's it's like wife swap if you remember <laughs> wife swap from yes, about 20 years that. ago yeah yeah I remember that. <laughs> yeah uh, number nine, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I think I'd be a political journalist because, first of all, I'm fascinated by, by what goes on in politics, not just local, but also kind of geopolitics, I suppose. It's just it's really interesting. And, I, you know, that's probably my biggest hobby outside music is, is following things going on all over the world and, and what's going on everywhere. Mm. But also... Um, I think I, I miss, I used to write a lot, especially obviously as a student writing essays and things like that. And, um, and of course, you know, you don't get to write very much other than the odd email and things, but actually I really like the idea of, of playing around with words and trying to make everything as kind of succinct as possible in, in a particular article or something. So yeah, I think something that involved an interest in writing and an interest in, in politics. So yeah, definitely political journalist. Brilliant choice and not one I've had before. <laughs> and finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, one of my podcasts that I listen to a lot is James A. Caster's Off the Menu. I'm not sure mm. if you know that, but it's um, it's essentially this question, but for an hour and a half. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right. it's a great, it's a great podcast, and it's yeah. often restaurant critics. And but the format always starts with, um, would you have sparkling or still water? And would you have bread or poppadoms? Right. So I would choose in for this meal at the beginning, um, sparkling water and three spicy, one plain poppadom with all the chutneys, all the usual yeah. stuff that you get here. Um, and then I'd go on the starter would be a lobster roll or possibly two very small lobster rolls. So I remember having having this in, in Maine in the United States and... Oh. Can't be a better just, place to have it than Maine and the United ah, States for lobster. Yeah, it was inc incredible, and it was um, it's the the meat is amazing, but actually they used a sort of brioche type bun with you know with butter and with salt crystals, and it was I've never tasted something so amazing. And um, so maybe two of them, very small, like the kind of pinchos that you get in the Basque country, just as a starter, mm. and then the main course. I know we've already mentioned lamb earlier on in the podcast, <laughs> but I think it would have to be. A combination of, I suppose, my two favourite things, which is um, British lamb or you know roast lamb with a curry. So I think some kind of maybe lamb shanks or very tender lamb, but in the format of a curry, like a, yeah. maybe a jalfrezi or something that's that nice and spicy. 
And then I think I would end this meal rather than going for dessert. I think I'd go for like a trio of Normandy cheeses. So um, Neufchâtel, Pont l'Evêque and a Camembert. And I think the whole thing would have to be accompanied by a, a Rioja. Brilliant choice. And uh, the lobster rolls it themselves got me salivating. So, <laughs> yeah, well, brilliant choice. And it's been a brilliant hour and a half chatting to you, George. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, I'm hoping after this that we can meet up for a pint somewhere and chat some more about all manner of things conducting. Thank you. I hope. I hope so. Thank you very much, Mike. Cheers. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who was the winner of the Besançon competition in 2005. Since then, he's held title positions in Spain, Switzerland, the United States and his native France. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>